wanted to, to mention to you before we get into God's word this morning. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And I think that the understanding of, of what Christ came to do for us in, 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 it, in, in its fullness, in the value that is so eternal for us, these are things we should never take for granted as believers in Jesus Christ. When we sing, Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. It's not just another thought. It's, just, it's not just another platitude. It, it is truth. Our salvation is real. And our salvation is eternal. And we need to live knowing that. And we need to live letting others know through our lives how precious that salvation is. Amen? So I draw your attention to John chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. I'd like for you to turn there with me. We began last week with the introduction to the Gospel of John, but as I said last time, that was the introduction to the introduction of the Gospel of John. And so John 1.1, and and actually I'm going to read the first five verses just because I want you to know that there's more to chapter 1 than verse 1. And we'll get to those verses later, but you'll also realize that chapter 1, verse 1, will actually give us understanding for verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, and the rest of the chapter. So beginning with verse 1, and this is going to be our focus this morning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness. And the darkness comprehended it not. Shall we pray? Father, we ask that you pour out your Spirit upon us this day. Grant us your wisdom and understanding to this one verse that sets for us, Lord, the foundation of all the verses of this chapter as well as this gospel. Father, we pray that you will grant us that wisdom and understanding and embrace it, Lord God, and and not only embrace it, but Lord, May our minds and our hearts be saturated with its truth. For indeed you have given us much truth to stand upon as your sons and daughters. But as we know, there are many who still need to understand your truth, Lord God. Help us to grasp it not only for ourselves, but Lord, to be able to declare and proclaim for others and to others the glorious truths of what we find in this one verse and in all the verses of this 
wonderful Gospel of John. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We spent a considerable amount of time last week comparing the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but comparing them and finding our focus on the uniqueness of the Gospel of John. As we look at the onset of this wonderful Gospel, it would be good as well to note that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin by placing Jesus within a certain historical setting. Now, I didn't mention this last week. I mentioned a lot about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But for today's purposes, we want to realize that those three Gospels place the Lord within certain historical settings. For example, Matthew, whoops, let me get ahead of myself there. Matthew starts off by giving us the genealogy of Jesus that links him to David and to Abraham. And of course, that is essential to our understanding of that gospel because it was written to the Hebrew mindset, to the Hebrew understanding, or Hebraic understanding. And then the gospel of Mark begins not with the birth of Jesus, but in fact it begins with the preaching of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. We find that Luke, in his gospel sets out with a dedication of, of, of that gospel to Theophilus, a man of, obviously a friend of his. But to Theophilus, and he continues with the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist. Not just the foreigner of, of the Lord, but also a, a relative. Those are the historical settings of those three gospels. But John, John begins quite differently and very unique because he begins with a theological introduction and a theological foreword. It is as if he is saying to his readers, I truly want you to consider Jesus in his life. I want you to consider his works and I want you to consider his words and his teachings. But you're not going to fully understand the good news of Jesus unless and until you see him from this point of view And that is that Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh, and His words and His works are those of the God-man. Now that's a lot of words to say, and therefore John puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the historical setting, as it were, or reference for John is in fact prehistoric, and I'm not talking about dinosaurs here. It's prehistory. But it's also pre-incarnation, pre-incarnate. We all do know what the incarnation is. Incarnate, in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in verse 1. But if you jump down to verse 14 there, and you can see that right there in front of you in your Bibles, in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Pre-incarnate. Before Jesus took upon Himself flesh. This is the setting upon which John begins 
his gospel. And as John begins his gospel with that great affirmation in the beginning was the word, he is not just referring to a start. He's not referring just to a beginning as we know a beginning. He is in fact referring to an, inf- to an infinite state. He's referring to an eternal state. It's not so much as the phrase a state. It's, I think sometimes we've heard this little phrase used, time and eternity. It is more accurately eternity and time. I always think, what came first, the chicken or the egg? First there was eternity, timelessness, because God, that, that is His time continuum as it were. God is eternal. Then He created. He had, the, the creation had a beginning and time began. And by the way, time is winding down now, isn't it? So, eternity and time. But even in this, John is setting forth both the divine and the human nature of the Messiah. So much of the Scriptures support the divine nature of Jesus. Now, when I say that, I want to be clear. I don't want to come from the divine nature of Jesus to be something that is new age, something that is kind of wacko. From the thinking of man's teachings today of religious positions or philosophical positions. Simply, we are talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not just the Son of God, He is God the Son. And we'll talk more about that as we go along in our study today. But one clear text is found for us, something that we can kind of stand upon today on that thought. One clear text that is found is in in Jesus' prayer in John 17. Sometimes it is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But it is a prayer between Him and the Father before Jesus goes to the cross. And this is what He says in verse 5 of that chapter. In His prayer, Jesus says, And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. How clear it is what Jesus is saying about His relationship and fellowship with His Father in that they share glory, but also about His timelessness in that He had that glory with His Father before the world was. There again we see an indication, a very clear statement, not only of deity, but of the very fact that Jesus Himself was involved in creation to the extent that He is and can be considered the Creator. And we'll see that as we go along today. So consider that there are many passages in the Word of God, especially in the New Testament, as we receive uh, the letters of Paul and and John and and, and Peter uh, on these very issues. But there's some very clear statements about the person and the nature of, of Jesus' divinity. For example... In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and even though we see that this is, this is a, a passage that deals with Jesus uh, leaving, in, in, in essence, that place with the Father to come and take upon Himself flesh, notice the statements that are made. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery 
to be equal with God. Now, we don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on, on this because we want to get back to the, the Gospel of John. But in effect, what he's saying is, who being in the form of God, already, you know, the form of God is really a statement of his likeness to God like no other has uh, as he does, and that he, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Therefore, it's not robbery for him. He's not stealing anything from God. He is equal with God. Let's just see that in its clarity uh, and simplicity. But made himself of no reputation. Therefore, Jesus voluntarily does this. He makes himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, the incarnation. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, obedient to the Father. Obedient in that he came with the purpose of fulfilling Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, to bring salvation to those who would believe. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And this is significant as well in, in, in the understanding of Jesus' deity that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus isn't just his name given for identification. It is, uh, the name is always, as, we, as we've talked about many times, the name is dealing with his authority and with his power and his, and his position. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So far we realize that it is Jesus the Son that, that shares the glory with His Father. He also shares the understanding of His position as Master. Because who else can be called Lord but Jesus and God in His fullness? And then there is a statement that Paul makes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16 that I want you to see. And I wish we had time, like another half hour, just to deal with the very first part of the statement. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That would take about half an hour to fully understand that. Suffice it to say that when you look at the next phrase, God was manifest in the flesh, that's really clear. God was manifest in the flesh. Who are we speaking of? It's okay, you can say the name. Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful name to speak? You see how important it is for us to understand the preciousness of the name of Jesus in its fullness, in its power, in its authority? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. That can only speak of one person, Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on and find great statements of this in, in, in the writings of the apostles, but these passages are confirmed in, in the Hebrew Scriptures as well. Let me quickly say that if we look at the book of Isaiah for just a moment, Isaiah 42, verse 8, we see a statement from God Himself who says, I am the Lord. Now remember last week I mentioned that the foundation of the Gospel of John uh, are not only seven miracles that we will see through the Gospel of John, but seven I Am statements of Jesus. 
Jesus will make seven statements that begin with I am. Here we see now God himself, as understood as the the one composite God, Elohim, I am the Lord, that is his name, the Lord. I am the I am, in essence. We know that because of we, we spoke of this last week in Exodus chapter 3. The burning bush out in the wilderness that, that Moses saw and he went to look at it. It was a bush that was burning, but it was not being consumed. And out of that bush came this voice that spoke to Moses. And after part of their conversation, Moses said, well, uh, what is your name? Uh, you know, and whose name is I, am I going to, to go forth? And of course, the voice said, I am that I am. I am. So when Moses go, he says, I am sent me. I am the Lord. Jesus makes seven I am statements in the, in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. God will not share his glory with any man. Yet we know that the Son and the Father share the same glory. Neither my praise to graven images. Go to the next chapter in Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 13. And notice what it says. God speaks to his people. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. No other God but the true and eternal God. And then he says, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. There is no one that is the Savior, but we know that Jesus is the Savior. For indeed, that is what He is sent to be. So no flesh, no flesh other than, you know, no, no corrupt flesh, but Jesus, who is not corrupt. I even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and I have saved. I have showed when there was no strange God among you. And therefore you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am He. You know, when I was looking at this particular passage, it, it kind of struck me, you know, the kind of the, 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 the formation of that particular statement. Yea, before the day was, I am He. And it brought to mind the statement that Jesus himself made to some detractors. As a matter of fact, it's in the Gospel of John, so we'll study it later. But when they were having a conversation about Abraham, remember what Jesus said? He said, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it, or who shall prevent it? So getting back to John 1 verse 1. The the Apostle John doesn't waste any time. He doesn't waste his time and he doesn't waste our time by arguing these points with the Gnostic heresies or heretics of his time. Which we'll talk about in just a moment. Instead he states certain facts that he knows beyond all shadow of a doubt to be true. He makes a very solid statement in the beginning. 
was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so all others can speculate if they want. John says, I know this to be true. He doesn't state it as speculation. He doesn't state it with wishful thinking. He states it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as truth and fact. And if there is a word, if there is a word to describe or, or that can be defined, or I should say that, that, that describes and points to us, uh, to Jesus in this gospel, a word that describes Jesus, And points us to him in this gospel. The word. What would that word be? Let me suggest to you the word ineffable. I-N-E-F-F-A-B-L-E. Ineffable. It's an old word. We don't use it anymore. At least I don't think anybody that I've ever read modern uh, in, in modern times uses that word, but it's used in a lot of old hymns. And the word ineffable is a word that can be defined as indescribable, inexpressible, overwhelming, deep, indefinable, unutterable, unspeakable, in a word, beyond words. And yet, our text says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is actually an echo. It is an echo of the first sentence of the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. Bet you didn't know we're going back to Genesis again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. The word that was with God and was God isn't named as such in this passage, but it is quickly seen in action. You go to verse 3 and immediately it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. You look more closely at the Hebrew and it doesn't have that many words. It just says, and God said, light be and light was. But God said, God spoke, you see. And things happened. In fact, we're going to see that God actually spoke creation into existence. You go to verse 5 of the text, it says, And God called, God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. God called the light day. He named something, but He spoke it. He called it what it was for us. Throughout the book of Genesis, and certainly throughout the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Lord expresses Himself throughout. The Lord creates, the Lord commands, the Lord calls. And this expression and speaking, in essence, this Word is God. 
You see, a God that does not speak is no God. A God that does not speak is no God. In other words, a wordless God is no God. A wordless God can accomplish nothing. Consider Isaiah 55 verse 11. A great verse of Scripture to see this thought. So shall my word be, God says. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish. It shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. It shall accomplish that which I please. God's word accomplishes what He wants it to accomplish. Is it any wonder then that the gods and the idols of of the world are what they are? And what are they really? There's not one of us in this whole room before we came to know Jesus Christ that didn't meddle with the gods of our own making and the gods of our own liking. What did it do for us? You read in Psalm 115, verses 4-8 through about these gods, these idols. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. But notice verse 5, They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. Noses, snot. Just try to make sure. It's 12 o'clock now. You should be awake. They have hands. But they handle not feet they have, but they walk not. Neither, notice this, neither speak they through their throat. <laughs> they that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. They accomplish nothing. If they do accomplish anything at all, they accomplish a separation from the Almighty God. And that's about it. And yet we are told in the beginning was the Logos. L-O-G-O-S. The Logos. The Logos. The word Logos was, was familiar to Greek philosophers, but be thankful we're not going to go into Greek philosophy today. The word Logos was familiar to Greek philosophers and it was a word that was actually adopted for his own purposes by the Jewish philosopher Philo. We won't go into his philosophies today today, as well. But to the Greeks, the word referred to the abstract conception that lies behind everything solid, material, and concrete. In other words, it just referred to the ideal or, or to what we might call wisdom, the wisdom behind the things that we can see and touch. The material things. This is somewhat of the role Logos had in pagan Gnosticism. And this was, this was a, <clears throat> a type of philosophical, religious philosophical idea of the time of John. For in John's time, you know, they were trying to define actually the person of Jesus Christ through these Gnostic philosophies and beliefs. 
In John's time, Jesus was identified by some Gnostics as an embodiment of the Supreme Being who became incarnate to bring Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, or Gnosis, which is learned knowledge, to the earth. Certainly it's aberrant and cultic, as it were. But there were extremes to the issue of Gnosticism of the time because there were other Gnostics who claimed that Jesus was merely a human who attained divinity through Gnosis and he taught his disciples to do the same. Now, what did I just say that uh, reminds us uh, of some things that we've learned over the past couple of years dealing with the, uh, the philosophies and the religions of the world that are trying to teach people that they themselves can attain godhood, divinity. So if the Gnostics claim that Jesus was merely a human who attained divinity, that means, well, any of us then can do that too. This is the New Age belief, or this is the New Age philosophy, but it is the old lie of Genesis chapter 3, where the the serpent there said to Eve, God just doesn't want you to become like Him. You can become like Him, knowing good and evil. But He doesn't give the whole story. That's what makes it the lie. And we've been plagued by the lie for centuries and thousands of years. The lie. Did God really say this? He just doesn't want you to be like Him. And some Gnostics, like the ones who held Him as a supreme being, they, they considered Him, the, you know, they, they, they were so, uh, to a certain direction, their understanding of, of, of knowledge that they did, they, they, they believed that matter didn't really exist, that everything was really spiritual. Everything was really spirit. So as far as Jesus was concerned, he really, you couldn't really see him, or, or you could see him, but you couldn't really touch him or whatever, and he walked kind of like above the ground. He never left footprints, you know, that kind of thing. It's kind of weird. And that's why I don't want to go into all of that. But this is what John had to really deal with, not only in the Gospel of John and, and stating the truths that he does about Jesus, but also in his writings of his letters to the churches, you know, First John, Second John, and Third John, and somewhat in the book of Revelation. So Logos was one of the steps then in the the Gnostic ideal. Logos was one of the steps through which people worked their way up to God. But the Logos of John 1 verse 1 corresponds actually more to the Hebraic understanding, more to to the Hebrew mindset. And this is what I was saying last week, that we're not going to deal with this from, from, from the Greek Western thought. We're going to look at it really from the, the, the Hebrew and, and, and the understanding of the Jewish thought of the word logos. Because it corresponds actually more to the word memra, which is the Aramaic word for word. And even the Hebrew word davar, D-A-V-A-R, which is also the the Hebrew equivalent of the word Logos, both of which, Mimra and Devar, which speak not only of the word, which deals with the word being the thought or the thinker, but also the matter. Simply, just to make it clear, it would be understood in these words, in the beginning was the real thing. In the beginning was the real thing. Jesus, in other words, is the real thing. In fullness of understanding, He is the real thing. 
So consider then that Logos is an expression of personality and communication. Personality and communication. The word is, is even deeper still in, in, in the understanding that it is creative in power. Logos is creative in power. So this gives us another characteristic of the personality of the person being spoken of, which is the word, the Logos. In Psalm 33, verse 6, if you'll turn there in your Bibles. I don't hear you turning there in your Bibles. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the Word, and the Word there in the Septuagint, the Septuagint, by the way, is the, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, LXX is the, is the abbreviation for the Septuagint. There were, there were 70 uh, uh, scholars that got together to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into, uh, into Greek. So that's why it's called the Septuagint. The word for word here is logos, the same word, which comes with this understanding. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. That is the creative power then of the word or the logos. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Do you see, do you see that? His mouth. Not its mouth. His mouth. The Lord, the Word of the Lord. And now you see a, a, a working here between this, this verse and verse 1 and, uh, of chapter 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To the Hebrew mindset, the Word of God was the self-assertion of the divine personality. To the Greek, the Logos denoted the rational mind to the, uh, that ruled the world. But to John, John declares that the Logos is the source of all that is visible and predates the totality of the material world. He was also bringing out the full significance of the Incarnation to the Gentile world as well as to the Jewish people. When, of course, he writes again in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory that is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. A message not just to the Jewish people, but to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles as well. A message to the whole, the whole world about Jesus Christ. And so His message was clear. Jesus was pre-existent. Jesus was involved in the act of creation and therefore He was superior to all created beings. He was not a created being, in other words. <coughs> he could not be a created being and create what He created because it would be illogical because He had to be before the creation. So to understand Logos even more, Jesus is the omniscient or the all-knowing genius behind the created universe. He is the genius behind the created universe. In a word, the Logos. But that's not all. Because the imperfect tense is used here. And when I say the imperfect tense, for us in English it sounds just past tense. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? We use the word was when we talk in the past tense. But in the Greek, it's a lot more, 
clearly drawn as, as, as a tense called the imperfect tense because the word was here expresses a continuous state. A continuous state, not a completed past. An absolute eternal existence, in other words. In the beginning was the Word. Always was and always will be. So it could also be stated, in the beginning was and is the Word and will ever be. And the Word was with God, was and is and will ever be. And the Word was God, He was and is and will ever be God. So you all understand now, the only imperfect ones here is us, not the imperfect tense. I mean, it, 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 that makes it clear. But Messiah is existing before all creation and directly involved with creation. Colossians chapter 1, a great passage to see this. Paul nails it, of course, because Paul was nailed by the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write this. But I begin with verse 14 as a, as a contextual place to start. In whom we have redemption. So we know who this is speaking of. In whom we have redemption through His blood. Who Do we know who it is? Yeah, this passage is about Jesus. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact image of the invisible God. So he's not just a little image of the invisible. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of every creature. We won't get into the word firstborn other than that it speaks of prototype, not that he was created. And I won't go into that, but, but there is an argument that we can solve all of that problem there. Uh, verse 16, for by him were all things created. So right there, there and then we realize that firstborn isn't speaking of a created being. Because by him were all things created. That are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Not just by Him, but for Him. And He is before all things, pre-existent, and by Him all things consist. All things are held together. That's what that word means. Held together. Be thankful that we're held together by Jesus Christ. Be thankful that He holds all things together. He holds all the molecules and the atoms in this whole world together. Be thankful that He's holding the atoms and molecules of those chairs you're sitting on together because if not, you'd be on the floor. And maybe you wouldn't even be on the floor. Who knows where you'd be? He's holding all things together. Because He was before all things. The Logos is a mode of existence that transcends time. It is completely above and separate from our time. The Word did not have a beginning. And what does that strongly suggest? That the Word does not have an ending either. The Word, the Logos, belongs to eternity. And so therefore, what we have just learned is that Jesus is God eternally. He is God eternally. 
No beginning, no end. But secondly, Jesus is God equally. He is equally God. When we look again at our text, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. With God. You know, the Hebrew writer certainly caught a glimpse of of this throughout all of, of the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's expressed, and we, we begin with, with this statement in what is called the Shema of, of, uh, of Deuteronomy 6, 4. Shema is Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And the verse expresses the unity of God. There's a unity of God, but we have to understand that the scriptures, especially the Hebrew scriptures from the very beginning, speak of a plurality in the one God, and therefore a composite God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, Elohim, and any Hebrew word ending in I am is a plural form, God, Elohim, a plural noun, created, bara, a singular verb. That's grammatically a struggle. (laughs) In the beginning, God, Elohim, created, a singular verb, expresses the idea of a plurality in the Godhead. Nothing wrong with that. It's one God. We are taught to know that there is only one God. But the teaching of this is consistent throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And so embedded in the Scriptures is the idea then of the Trinity. One God in three persons. We can understand this better that as we do our our study of the the New Testament, uh, we realize, and actually we can can include all of the Scriptures, but particularly in the New Testament, that in the Scriptures there is a person that we see called the Father. And we know that the Father is also called God. But then we read on and we study deeper and we find that there is a person mentioned in the Scriptures and He is called the Son. And He's called God. Then we find another person, a person known as the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we read of him as a person. To check, for example, Acts chapter 5. He's called a person there, or, or is referred to as a person. And we read about this person called the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's also called God. But we know that there's only one God. So one God in three persons. Who have their own particular functions and, 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 and all, but... Nonetheless, they're still one God, and they're equal. And it's a difficult concept to grasp in our finite minds, but we're not left without some illustration, especially in in the creation. And I'm not going to go into great detail. Sometimes the illustrations are a little weak, you know. You know, the water, the H2O, and the the ice, and the, the vapor, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, it's a little weak uh, as an example, but, you know, it could be. 
But let's consider real quickly the, the illustrations in creation. We, we, you all know that we do have a tri, this is science class now. We all have, we all have a, a knowledge that the, the, the universe is triune. We have a, a triune universe. It's one universe. Universe. Un, uh, speaking, uni means one. So we all know that uh, the universe is, is made up of three things. But it's still one universe. It's made up of space, matter, and time. There's a test after this. You do know. Space, matter, and time. Now let's break that down. Let's take space. Space, the final frontier. David, come up and say that for me. <laughs> you got a great voice. Space. Space is triune. Right? Space has length, breadth, and height. Then you take matter. Matter is triune. Matter is, uh, involves energy and motion and phenomena. And then time. Time is also triune. This one is easy. This is the trick question here. What's time made up of? Past, present, and future. Okay. Again, there's a test right afterwards. All right. Interesting, isn't it? So when John says the Word was with God, he is stating a beautiful and inspiring truth that Jesus is equally God with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He was with God together. He is God the Son, the second person of the, of the Trinity. There are many verses of Scripture singularly and, and, and within uh, you know, the, the text of the writings of the apostles and, and all uh, that speak of this uh, many times. When you, when you go through your readings of, of, the, of the letters of Paul and Peter and of John, find those times when you see in one verse, let's say, or maybe in a couple of verses, the mention of, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. For example, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you were sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In one verse here we see the fullness of the Godhead mentioned. The Father, who sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, into your hearts and mine, crying, Abba, Father. There's, one, there's, another, there's a lot of them. Let me just give you one more. Luke 3, uh, 3 verse 22. We all know this is the account of Jesus being baptized by John at the Jordan. Uh, here it tells us that the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, upon Jesus. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. And so here we see the three together in this very intimate and beautiful picture of the baptism of Jesus. By the way, did Jesus need to be baptized? He didn't. Why, why was he baptized? He was baptized to show us why he came, to show us the manner in which he would come. Baptism reflects the death of a person, being buried, but then being raised alive in newness of life. He didn't need to be baptized. He was the Son of God. He was God the Son. So, Jesus is God eternally. He is God equally and he is God essentially. 
He is essentially God. The last phrase of our text, and the Word was God. The Word was God. You'll notice there's not a little, a little A there in between was and God. Y'all, you, y'all do notice that? There's not a little A like, it's a, like some people have written. As a matter of fact, one translation in particular, the New World Translation of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, uh, which is uh, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, who, uh, because they don't believe that Jesus is, in fact, deity, that uh, they have placed a little A between was and God, that the word was a God, but that also uh, contradicts their own uh, belief that there are no other gods but one God. So why would they do that? Uh, so they contradict their own theology. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. The truth is that in the Greek, there is no little a. It is very clear the word was God. God has to correspond to the other mentions of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So, you, I mean, you have to do all kinds of of uh, grammatical gymnastics to make that not work. So in his essence, in what he actually is, in his nature, in his person, in his personality, in his attributes, in his character, Jesus is all that God is. Jesus is all that God is. All the essential characteristics of divinity and deity are his. He exists in his own right as independent of all creation. If God has the wisdom and the power to create a hundred million galaxies and, and hold them in place, so does Jesus. So does Jesus. And that is what makes our Lord Jesus Christ ineffable. Oh my God, I forgot what that word means. I told you there's a test. Ineffable indescribable, inexpressible, overwhelming, deep, undefinable, unutterable, unspeakable in a word beyond words. Jesus is just beyond words and yet He is the Word. He's the Logos. In Hebrews 1, verses 1-3, through and I'll close with this. It says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days. Isn't it interesting? This is about 2,000 years ago. The last days have lasted a long time, huh? But He has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. What does that tell us? He's the Creator. And then He says, who being the brightness of His glory. Does God share His glory with any man? No, but Jesus has His glory because He is equal with the Father. He is God the Son and the Son of God, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image, the express image, not a cheap copy. No, the express, full, complete image of God, of His person, and upholding all things by the Word of His power. The Word of His power. When He had by Himself purged our sins, this lets us know what He came to do for us. When He had by Himself 
purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This can be no one else but Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, preexistent to any beginning that we had, any beginning to this universe. And the Word was with God, equally together with the Father and the Spirit. And the Word was God, is God, and forever will be God. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you so much. That in such a busy weekend, we have been able just to come and to find our rest in you, in our time of worship, in our time of praise, in our time of fellowship, and in our time of contemplating the things that you have done for us, meditating upon the works that have affected our lives, not just for a time, but for eternity. We are here before you today, thankful for allowing us to realize the the fullness of of this one verse, to, to stand upon the truths of this gospel, and in fact of the whole of your word. We ask your blessing as we continue on in this wonderful journey in the Gospel of John. I pray for the hearts of those who are here today who have come to realize the person of Jesus in the way that you want them to see Jesus. Not as the world pictures him. Not as the world designs him to be. but as He has always been. And I pray, Father, that if anyone here, Lord, has never prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be that day when they would meet the Word made flesh and dwelt among us and dwelling among us and eventually to dwell in their hearts by faith and trust. Surrender. Dying to self and becoming alive in Christ. Our whole desire, Lord God, is is to preach Christ and Him crucified. The work that has been done, Lord, for salvation. May we embrace together fully, Lord, the understanding of our God, our King, our Savior, and our Redeemer. We thank you and bless you, Lord, for your Spirit that teaches and continues to teach us, that establishes and continues to establish your truths in our hearts. 
This we thank you for and ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.